Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 294. Today's episode is all about how mindset relates to goal setting. I mean, none of us want to be uncomfortable just for its own sake. It's it's not fun. Um, but when there's something at stake, you know, for me, it was, I don't want to live a small life anymore. I want to be seen. Uh, I want to feel worthy of being seen. I want to feel like I can trust myself and my own body. Um, and I have something that's worth sharing that I don't want to keep inside anymore. And that gave me the courage to stay in that place of uncertainty and it was it was really uncomfortable, you know, but because I was connected to a bigger why, and you know this from our, our goal achievement work, that's so important with motivation. We have to have an intrinsic reason why it's worth it to be uncomfortable. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Ready to make some positive changes in your life? Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to get your weekly dose of mind love. That way, you'll always be informed about new episodes. And don't forget, we have more ways to give your mind love at mindlove.com slash membership. Have you ever felt like your own thoughts were working against you? That the stories you tell yourself about who you are, what you can achieve and what's possible might be holding you back from reaching your true potential? If you have, let me tell you that you're actually quite a few steps further than the average person. Most people don't even get this far. They don't realize that it's their own thoughts that are working against them. Instead, they just believe their thoughts to be true. They think, I'm not smart enough. I'm too old or too young. I don't have enough time. I'm not cut out for that. And those beliefs keep them from even trying. The thing is, those beliefs come from somewhere. Someone told you these things about yourself. Or maybe someone modeled those beliefs for you. Or maybe you just never saw anything else modeled, so it doesn't even seem like a possibility. For example, if you were raised in a lower income neighborhood and no one you knew ever moved out and moved on, it would probably be pretty difficult to think that a different life is even possible. Or if your parents were constantly telling you that you're too dumb from a young age, you might not even question it. Once these beliefs are formed, we tend to live our lives confirming them. You get a bad grade on a test and it's because you're dumb, not because you didn't study. But really, you didn't study because what's the point of studying because you're going to fail anyways because you're too dumb? It's kind of a cycle. Or you didn't feel loved growing up, so you believe that you're hard to love. And this leads to avoiding relationships or sabotaging them when they happen because... They're going to leave you anyways when they discover the real you, so why not make it easy for them now? I feel like I was one of the lucky ones. I was surrounded by people who believed in me when I was young. 
So my foundation of beliefs were fairly empowering. But then I entered the real world and no one is immune. I had real traumas and some terrible life experiences and my belief system started to rewrite itself. I doubted myself. I started to think that maybe I wasn't cut out for success. I started to think that maybe I wasn't lovable and maybe I wasn't worthy. It took years of diving into self-development to come back to my foundation. One of the limiting beliefs that became really pervasive in my early adulthood was that I couldn't follow through on things. No matter how much I felt like I wanted to accomplish something, I would lose motivation halfway through. I remember thinking that I wasted all of my motivation on high school and college. It took me half a decade to realize that I just didn't understand how my brain worked or didn't work. School provided the structure that I needed to get things done. There was a deadline. There were grades. There was friendly competition between peers. Well, for me at least. I loved being at the top of my class. And often, teachers would even break things down so we wouldn't be overwhelmed with one big assignment. Too bad most of the things I learned were kind of useless for my life path, but that's a whole nother episode. It took me until age 32 to finally get fed up and realize that my way wasn't working. I couldn't just rely on some initial motivation. I needed to figure out what was holding me back and how to break through those things. And then I needed to figure out a structure to keep the momentum going. In short, I needed to figure out how to work with my brain instead of against it. And that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Megan Hyatt Miller. She's a renowned thought leader, coach, and author, and she's dedicated her life to helping others understand the inner use that knowledge to achieve their goals. So three key things we will learn are how our brains make narratives, why those narratives can be both helpful and harmful, and her three-step method for rethinking our thinking when we're stuck in a rut. Before we totally expand our minds, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you just get a little inspiration to set your tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on. Think of it like a short note from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a super powerful 30-minute affirmation meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Megan Hyatt Miller to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I'm thrilled to be here. So I love to ask people what inspired their work, but given that I know who your dad is, I've taken the best year ever course. I'm curious what it was like to grow up in that environment, because that's something my husband and I always talk about where yeah. we're like, man, I, I'm glad that we're going to be the trendsetters in our family for our children. But what would it have been like if our parents were already in that mindset? <laughs> well, you know, there were so many great things about it. Um, one of the things that I really learned from my dad that I think he really learned from his dad is that if you don't know the answer to something, it's not a problem because somebody out there somewhere knows what you need to know. You just have to find them. And of course, when I was growing up, that was before the internet, that was before uh, YouTube and social media. So it's only easier now um, compared with how it was back then. But I think that was really an empowering lesson to learn. And my dad did a really great job of when I was a kid, 
taking me with him to business meetings. And I can remember the very first meeting I went to, I was eight years old. Can you believe that? (laughs) And, uh, you know, he would just let me sit in on those. And I think I learned so much from him just by being together in those professional settings. And that really continued all the way through high school for me. Um, and, and then of course now we're business partners. So we do all kinds of things together, but, um, it was, it was really special including writing a book together. And I have been just flying through your book this week. And I will be honest, I didn't realize there's going to be so much new information to me, given how much I've already studied the mind. And so I I was like skimming and then I was like, I can't skim this. I got to go through. (laughs) And so one of the first things that caught my eye is that you shared that nearly every challenge that people face is based in the brain and also evident in the Mm -hmm. stories that we tell about our reality. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, this this really has been such a feature in my own life. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, um, kind of my own story with this and overcoming a pretty major fear I had of public speaking. But, you know, for those of us who would consider ourselves high achievers or, you know, people who are intentional about the way that we live our life, we tend to be very action biased. And in some ways, that's not a bad thing. I mean, we all know that taking action is is really integral to driving results in our lives. You know, if you want to live a certain way and you, you want to have a certain kind of life, then you're going to have to take certain kind of actions. But where that kind of breaks down for people and certainly did for me is that if you're not getting the results you want or you have a vision for your life and there's something standing in the way, maybe you're not even sure what it is, but you just can't seem to get unstuck or, you know, kind of go to that next level. It's not usually helpful to focus on actions because more than likely you're going to try similar things to what you've done before. And in fact, the secret lies in going upstream to our thinking because our thinking and even more specifically, the stories we tell ourselves kind of predispose us to the actions that come to mind that are available to us, which ultimately are the things that drive the results we're getting in our life. And so if we want better results, we have to go upstream and really develop better thinking. But that's a challenge because our brain feeds up stories to us that aren't always the most empowering. Sometimes they're fine and they're no problem. And other times they really get in the way. And that's really what we address in the book, Mind Your Mindset. Yeah. And I was kind of thrown by this because there's so many books that say that say that action is really the key to overcoming some of these mindset blocks. And and so I know that our thinking is one of the most critical parts. That's why I created this podcast. It's all about the yeah, power right. of the mind. But tell us about what that action bias is and why strategy and execution can really only take us so far. Yeah, well, you know, what we think about uh, what our kind of stories are about how the world works, how we are, how other people are bias and not even in a good way or a bad way because it can go in either direction, but it biases our mind to search for certain kinds of actions and solutions. It's kind of like, you know, everybody's had the experience of you get a new car and all of a sudden you're like, everybody has the same car as I do. And of course, suddenly on that day that you went and picked your car up, you know, the, the masses didn't also buy the same car. It's that all of a sudden your brain started looking for the thing that was, uh, it was predisposed to see. And that's kind of how our thoughts work. Work. You know, they pre-tune our brain to look for certain kinds of solutions. So if we focus on strategy and execution, which are vitally important, but if we focus on those first,
first, we're only going to be able to see what our brain allows us to see. And we're not going to have access to new and different ways of thinking. Part of that is because the brain likes to do the same things over and over again. It likes, you know, those ruts, those neural pathways that are cut through our brains and have been well practiced over time. And then you layer on top of it the fact that the thing that our brain is the absolute best at when it comes to storytelling is keeping us safe. You know, it wants to keep us safe. It wants to avoid danger. It wants to avoid humiliation. And so when you add that bias on top of it, it can really stand in the way of finding new ways to get breakthroughs in areas where we have felt stuck in the past or where we're just, we want to go to the next level and our old strategies maybe aren't going to get us there. One of the things that really caught my attention that I really haven't heard in this way before is that because I know that our past stories affect what we think we're capable of. It affects our reality. It affects how we view the world, other people, what we think is possible. But what I didn't quite realize is that our goals are also the other side of that. And so we're constantly filtering things through our past actions, our past experiences, and also our goals. And you gave this really good example of a doctor and this guy that was trying to climb. <laughs> can, can you yes. tell that story? Because I thought that was incredible. Yes. Yeah. So this is an amazing story. This is worth looking up and reading the whole thing. But there was a mountain climber named Hugh Hare. And he, uh, when he was in his late teens or early 20s, he was climbing a mountain and got really bad frostbite. And he actually had to have his legs amputated, which is like, obviously the end of the story for a mountain climber. I mean, how is a guy with no legs going to climb a mountain, right? And that's what his doctors told him. They said, you know, hey, we're going to have to tell you some hard news. You're not going to be able to, to climb mountains anymore. You know, we're sure you'll do great things in your life, but you know, your athletic career in this regard is over. And he said, not so fast. I actually don't need legs to climb a mountain. I just need a way to get up the mountain, to scale the mountain and, uh, and to hang on. And you know, I'm sure his doctors were like, buddy, you are crazy. But in fact, he went on to develop these amazing prosthetic legs that allowed him to climb, get this, faster than he'd ever climbed before. So, I mean, he's breaking his own records with these new legs that he's created. And in fact, he has become a professor at MIT. He holds a whole bunch of patents for all kinds of prosthetic limbs that have enabled all kinds of people with similar challenges to uh, overcome their own limitations. But the real difference maker in Hugh Hare's story is that he told himself a different story than his doctors were telling him. I mean, his his doctors were saying, hey, this is it. It's over. You know, glad you had a good run, but we're done. And I think that's the big idea of this book is that all of us inside our heads, we have this kind of character called the narrator. That's what we call it in the book, which is really just our brain. And, and the narrator doesn't distinguish between what happens to us. So like in the, in the example of Hugh Hare, getting frostbite and having to have your legs amputated. Those were the facts and what happened. And the story that we tell ourselves about the facts. So his doctor said, you'll never be able to climb a mountain again. Well, that's a story. That's not necessarily a factual uh, accounting of what happened. Um, And so this narrator really can take on a life of its own. And most of us aren't even aware that it's talking to us kind of in the background. We assume that it's just, it's just us and it's, it's the facts of the situation. But in reality, 
if he, if Hugh Hare had not had the story of actually, I don't need legs. I just need a way to climb up this mountain. He would never have been able to discover the innovations that he came up with for these prosthetics legs that have enabled him to do all the mountain climbing he's done since then. If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way Estro Control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. Estro Control was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. Estro Control is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and Estro Control is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A. Then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? <laughs> they have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, hit classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. Alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. It just reminds me of the Henry Ford quote about if, yeah. if you would have asked the people what they want, they would have asked for a faster horse. And right. rather than considering there might be this whole other pathway that you're not thinking about. Yep. But if we have these stories that we've experienced, these our own experiences that have created limiting beliefs, and then on the other side, we have these big goals. Mm -hmm. What I find that 
what gets in my way sometimes is it's just like you said, how we, I won't even think of a big goal because my mind is already kind of blocking it off. Like that might not be possible. I don't want to let myself down or, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed or whatever it is. And so how do we get to the point of even being able to create bigger goals so that it can kind of counteract some of our past experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that experience is so common. I've faced it many, many, many times myself. Many of our clients have. We we just worked with so many people in that exact situation. It's completely normal. What I have found is that the first step, and we actually go through three steps in the book to begin to tell yourself better stories so you can get better results in your life, is to identify the stories you're telling, you know, identify this narrator, because like I said, it kind of operates in the subconscious and most of us aren't even aware that it's happening. And so if you can just bring those stories to your awareness and what we say in the book is the best access to these stories is the language you use. So usually those stories sound something like, well, he would never fill in the blank or I could never do that. Or I always do this you know, that's kind of what these stories sound like. They sound very certain. You know, it's amazing to me, actually, because they're very subjective, but they sound so true and so certain. And if we can start by just identifying those stories, then we can move to the next step, which is to interrogate those stories. And, you know, you think about like those old um, crime movies with the, the light bulb, the single light bulb hanging in the dark room over the table, right? You know, it's like, we need to actually do that with our stories. And before we can even interrogate though, we do want to be very kind to ourselves and very self-compassionate as we're identifying these stories, because your brain's really just trying to help you. You know, it's not anything you did wrong. You're not like just a negative person or something like that. It's just always going to be that self-protective kind of story that's going to come up first because that's how you're wired. And so when you begin interrogating, you're not doing it to judge yourself. You're really just seeing if you can pull apart The facts, you know, the things that would be in like a boring police report, you know, the guy across the street at 6.59 p.m., uh, then he walked across, you know, to the the burger place or whatever, you know, it's always going to be boring from the story. And if you can begin interrogating that, pulling them apart, then you can ask questions like, hmm, has that ever been not true? You know, when I say things like he's always or I never, that kind of thing, you know, what else might be true? Do other people think this or do they have a different interpretation? And so you can start to just sort of, you know, shake the edges of these things loose so that you can then ultimately get to the third step, which is to imagine a better story. And that's really exciting because what what I love about this book, Mind Your Mindset, and the research that we did and our own work in this process is to realize we have a lot more agency than most of us have thought. You know, most of us, I mean, I know I felt like this before, just kind of feel like the victim of what's happened to you in your life. You know, all of us have had hard things, some more traumatic than others. And the reality is that that is all true. I mean, everybody has had difficult things and and some really, really difficult things. And we don't have to stay with the stories that those experiences left us with. We can actually intentionally intervene, interrogate those stories and imagine something better. And ultimately that can become what feels truest to us and ultimately guides our actions and the results that we accomplish as a result. I'm reminded of a quote in your book that I had to write down just because I've always prided myself on having an open mind, but I've noticed the more that I've grown and the more that I actually really dive into topics that 
what ends up happening for me is I keep an open mind with a lot of things until I get to something where I'm like, wow, that just sw switched my mindset completely, which I'm used to doing. There's so many things that I started on one side and now I'm on the complete other. Sure. But then once I'm on that other side, I start to get closed minded because I'm like, I've already been on this side. Sure. You know? Like now yeah, right. I'm right. <laughs> and there's no one that's convincing me that I'm not. But what we refer to is, as a closed mind is nothing more than the brain's standard method of operation, which prefers familiar, well-established mm -hmm. neural pathways. And I was like, well-established, yeah. that's the thing. I'm really good at being open-minded yeah. on the things that I haven't really gone deep on. But once I start going deep and who, who knows really if I even went down the right path, but I've spent so much time in that, that then all of a sudden my hard candy shell starts to kind of close around my mind. And I'm like, I'm not going back to that other side. So that just was really helpful. Mm -hmm. But I want to kind of dive in deeper on the identifying the story that we're telling ourselves. You mentioned separating fact from opinion, but I know that there's two other things that really kind of show themselves when we are forming our opinions and believing them to be fact, and that's our emotions. Mm -hmm. And then also, I know we tend to yeah. connect to metaphors a lot because that's just the way we understand our world. So what do we do with those two yeah. things and how do we kind of dissolve those to get to the root of what we're thinking about? Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point because you're right. Some of the most difficult stories in terms of how they've negatively impacted our life are cemented in moments with a lot of emotion, usually negative emotion. You know, some of the best stories are on the other side. So I think about uh, in my own story, which I tell in Mind Your Mindset about my fear of public speaking, which really began when I was in high school. I had a very close friend who was delivering a presentation in front of the class and she had an anxiety attack and literally ran out of the classroom, bawling her eyes out. I found her in the bathroom, just kind of in the fetal position. And I'm very empathetic by nature. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, speaking is so dangerous. I never want to be humiliated like that and lose control of my body. And I, I didn't realize that. I wasn't conscious until many years later that that moment had catalyzed this fear for me, but the fear just grew and grew and grew over the years. And to the point where, you know, like if I was in a book club and you know, how you go around and everybody reads, you know, you read this chapter and I'll read, you know, whatever. I couldn't even do that in front of six or eight people. Literally every time I opened my mouth, my voice would shake and I would feel like I was losing control of my body. And fast forward in my professional career, I avoided all kinds of opportunities that might involve speaking. I mean, I just, I avoided it like the plague and nobody knew. It was really my secret shame, except for my husband. Nobody was aware until finally, fast forward about five years, uh, six years ago, my team came to me and said, hey, we want to do a big event and we want you to keynote, which was totally natural thing for them to ask me to do, given my role. And they said, this will be about 800 people. And we think it's going to be great. And of course, I didn't hear anything after 800 people. I'm just like, oh my <laughs> gosh, first keynote, 800 people is my literal worst nightmare. And I ended up in my own version of my friend's story at a American Airlines gate in Chicago, getting ready to leave uh, to come home from a business trip, crying, talking to a friend who was a speech coach and saying, I, I have to finally face this fear because my life is getting smaller and smaller and I'm not willing to pay that price anymore. And so I really began that process of 
getting clear about what stories that I'd been telling all these years, you know, that began in my teens and then interrogating them. And you know, what's funny, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I was saying, you know, I had evidence in my own experience of times that I had spoken, including in high school, like at my graduation, when I had given a speech and not lost control of my body and I wasn't humiliated and it went great. But the story was so strong that my brain just kind of filtered that out. It couldn't integrate that. And so it, it was just basically scanning for things that would help to confirm the story that I already had. And so I, I went through a very disciplined process of interrogating that story. And then ultimately, I wrote out about a page and a half of what I wanted to experience, the new story, when I stepped on that stage in front of 800 people, because I was determined that come hell or high water, I was going to give that speech and survive it, you know? And um, it was amazing. It was a it was a very difficult, honestly, brutal six weeks of preparation for that, including panic attacks and, you know, anxiety doctors and speech coaches and all kinds of stuff. But I I made it. I got up there. It was fantastic. I finally looked that story in the eye and I, uh, you know, kind of dethroned it, so to speak, once and for all. And now on the other side of that, all these years later, you know, I do tons of speaking every week, all week, you know, in some form or fashion. And it's amazing because I would have never thought that was possible because of the story I was telling myself. It's amazing how much stronger the negative stories are, even if you have a hundred times the evidence for a different story. I am reminded of my first two bigger professional jobs. The very first one was an enrollment counselor at the University of Phoenix, which was a tumultuous experience in itself. But I, I did really well in sales. But then the company ended up kind of going under after I left. But Mm. I just remember kind of looking back and, and not feeling good about the work that I did there because I didn't necessarily Mm. feel good about their business model. And then I ended up working with a startup that was doing really amazing in the beginning, but because of just changes that were out of our control with the app store model, blah, blah, blah. That company ended up going Mm -hmm. under. And then the next company that popped up that I was hired with, with the same CEO, he was having a hard time getting it off the ground. And so I, Mm. when I finally decided to start my own business, I didn't realize how tied I was to this idea that the businesses that I was involved in don't succeed. And so I had a really difficult time feeling successful and like tying my own, I was like, am I just Mm -hmm. bringing companies down? Like, not like I could bring down the University of Phoenix, but you know, and so it was when I started actually working with limiting beliefs and, and uncovering those stories. And it took a lot of work to even see that that was one. I had no idea that was affecting me. And so I Mm -hmm. love when you kind of ask yourself, like, well, what other evidence do I have for my success? Because that was the one that got me with that, Mm -hmm. where I was like, there's all these things. It doesn't have to be a business, but there's been a lot of things that I've been involved in that have been successful. And there's been a lot of ways that I've proved to myself that I can follow through and, and all of these things that I needed to see in myself. What are some other questions that can help us assess the logic of our own stories? Yeah. One of the things that you can do if you have people in your life who you trust, who you really feel like are for you, and not everybody does, and I recognize that, but if you do, sometimes other people can see things that are not apparent to us. And this is where, you know, this could be a spouse, 
a significant other, a close friend, a coworker. It could also be a coach. It could be a therapist. Uh, in fact, really good therapy is exactly this, right? This is this process of interrogating these stories that are holding us back. And um, sometimes they can see things that you can't see. And so I think you could ask somebody, okay, in this example of, you know, always being behind business failures in one way or another, do you think of anything that comes to mind in my professional career, as long as you've known me, that would be counter to that? And my guess is that people in your life would would have said, oh, yeah, do you remember that one time you got that award for that thing? Or do you remember that time you did that presentation and it absolutely saved whatever, you know, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot about that, you know. And so I think one of the best strategies here, um, besides doing your own interrogation, is bringing somebody else into the conversation because they don't feel the um, emotional connection and the power of that original story in the way that you do. So they're going to feel freer to interrogate and ask questions or say, really? Because I don't think that's how people see you. Or really? Because in my experience, most people are are actually pretty good hearted and generous. You know, I think you've just met a few people that were, um, you know, really nefarious or something like that. And, and that can be so, so helpful. I know for me, when I am really attached to a story. I feel compelled to back that up. It's n- it's not as easy for me <laughs> to be like, yes, you know what? Let me challenge this and see if I can just open my mindset because I've been believing mm-hmm. this thing for so long. And I know that there are yeah. other reasons. And your brain which- likes certainty. Yes. And, and there are other reasons why our narrator gets things wrong. One of them is like I was just talking about, it feels really good to be right. Why is that? Why does Mm. it feel good to be right, even when we know there could be a doubt that we're not right? (laughs) Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. Why is that? Why does Mm. it feel good to be right, even when we know there could be a doubt that we're not 
Right. <laughs> you know, I feel like this is the million dollar question. And if we solve this, we will make our society a whole lot better because <laughs> we've got a lot of people who really want to be right all the time, even when they're not, you know, on every side of everything. I think that it goes back to what we were just saying. Our brains really love certainty. They do not like uncertainty. They do not like chaos. They like predictability because if they can predict, and this is one of the main functions of the brain is, is predicting based on past experiences and assumptions. If they can can predict the future, then they can keep us safe. And so that's, again, that's the whole goal and outcome that the brain is concerned with. And so you being right is safer than even though we know at a more, from a more evolved perspective, that's not actually true, but our brain's a little behind, you know, in some ways. And it thinks that if we can be certain and if it can know, then that is much less dangerous than the liminal space of not knowing. And I think that can be really unsettling. And, you know, this is something, frankly, I've had to work on. My husband, Joel, is awesome at this. He's a real intellectual and he reads a ton and he's always reading really diverse sources and he doesn't mind questioning his assumptions. And I remember when we first got married 14 years ago, that was kind of threatening to me. You know, I didn't want, I didn't like arguing. I didn't like debating. I didn't like, uh, and, and he loves all that kind of stuff, you know? And, and I learned from him that if you can just suspend your disbelief for a moment, and you just sort of have to learn how to tolerate the discomfort of this because it is uncomfortable, then you can open yourself up to new possibilities. And, and that's really exciting. I mean, that's how we all grow, but we have to get out of our comfort zone. And I think when we realize our brain just wants to be comfortable and it wants to be safe. And so we're just going to have to build our tolerance for some of that discomfort. I think that's how we do it. Another thing that our brains do is that we are they're naturally programmed to find the why, which can be really good in some situations, but yes. then it's sort of filling in blanks that it doesn't have the answers to and then convinces itself that it has all the answers to. So how is that affecting us? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are meaning makers. That is one of the real distinctives of, of humans is that we make meaning. The problem is we don't always have all the pieces to make meaning that is either helpful or very accurate. You know, very often, sometimes in, in situations where we feel the most compelled to make meaning, we have the least amount of information. And so we're just kind of trying to stitch together something that makes sense because it's too unsettling to not have any kind of schematic for an experience or a life. It's part of how we process things. And, and that can be a real problem for us because a lot of times we're wrong. You know, it's sort of like uh, I'm here at my office today and I went over earlier and got some coffee. And let's say that um, somebody who works for me came in and I was busy, you know, thinking about this interview and I didn't look them in the eye and say, good afternoon, or, you know, how's your day going or something like that. Well, they could walk off and say, oh, Megan didn't say anything to me. I bet she's mad at me. I bet I'm about to get fired. And in reality, like, I'm not thinking about them at all. I'm thinking about this interview I'm about to have and, you know, what we're going to talk about. And I'm, I'm totally distracted with something else. But this kind of stuff happens all the time. And the problem is, like we talked about at the beginning, our thinking informs our actions and our actions inform our results. So if the person I didn't say hello to at the uh, kitchen earlier today thinks that they're going to get fired and they start acting out of that place. And maybe they start looking for another job and they start, you know, telling their coworkers they think they're going to get fired. And maybe they kind of mentally check out because they think that's imminent. They might end up getting fired because 
you know, they they started acting like a person who was about to get fired. In reality, that wasn't even on the table at all. And so I think that's how we get ourselves in trouble is that those those assumptions that come from the stories drive our actions and our actions deliver results. And sometimes those are not the ones we want. I have a history with this, <laughs> as all, all of us do. But one of the things yeah. that I've become aware of in the last few years that I wouldn't have known about myself five to 10 years ago is I have a tendency, and I know a lot of people do, when I'll leave an event or leave hanging out with a friend, all of a sudden I'll start to overthink everything. I could have felt amazing the entire conversation. I could have Me made too. a bunch of friends. And then I leave and I'm like, yeah, was I too intense right there? I, I tend to be too intense. Was I? I wonder what they think of me, like blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden I'm second guessing my whole personality oh. <laughs> and I tie it back to yep. uh, my whole life. My, yeah. And when I was a, a child and I don't even know if this is the right or wrong thing to do as a parent, it seems kind, but I don't know. My I just remember a lot of times on drives home, that's when my mom would kind of bring up the things that bugged me, bugged her <laughs> about what I did as a kid, you know, like talking back or whatever. And so it was, I was always Whoa. kind of bracing myself for the car yeah. ride home of like, okay, what I do wrong. And so yeah. now whenever I'm in a car ride home all by myself, I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong there? Let's unpack this, Melissa. <laughs> so tying those together was both freeing and also kind of yeah. sad. I'm like, man, this is deeply rooted. This isn't just like this one-off thing. And so now I have to remind myself, like I have to give myself a pep talk on any car ride home where I'm like, let's list all the things you did well. <laughs> I'm like trying to yeah. reverse it so that maybe I get excited for that instead of my brain defaulting to all of the things that I, that I possibly yeah, did that's wrong. That's a great strategy. Kind I of, think that's so normal. I have that too. My husband calls that uh, the doom loop. <laughs> One of the things that is hard for me as somebody who has a mindfulness podcast, I go deep into the spiritual, is when I was first diving into this side of, of my beliefs, there's such an emphasis placed on intuition and how, yeah. you know, here, yeah, you might be placed with these facts, but how do you feel? Where's your intuition steering you? But the truth is, is that intuition can be risky. Mm -hmm. When is intuition a good thing to lean on? And when is it something that we should also be challenging? Or is it kind of a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two. I would consider myself highly intuitive. And I would also say that that's one of the greatest strengths that I bring to my personal and professional life. You know, I, I jokingly say like, I ignore that in my own peril. And when I do, I always regret it. Um, however, you know, sometimes it is wrong and sometimes it can be wrong because of our past experiences. Again, our brain wants to keep us safe. And so if it thinks that something is threatening some way, for example, this is a, this is how prejudice can often work or bias, you know, because we've been conditioned socially to have certain fears or assumptions about different people groups that our brain in its kind of primitive form reads as being dangerous. And so what can feel like intuition or like a, you know, kind of knee jerk reaction, that person's dangerous, or I don't like them, or it's not a good idea to hire that person can be absolutely a function of these past experiences in our brain, again, not in its fully evolved state, um, trying to keep us safe, but not really being helpful. And so that's where we have to become aware of the stories. What we talk about in the book is this idea of 
intuition is a really great thing, but it needs to be also matched and kind of balanced with our reason. And so that, and, and our reason, like our executive function can help us to um, really identify the stories that are behind that intuition. As long as they're helping you, it's great. You know, as long as it really is keeping you safe in a, in a way that's not undermining other things in your life. And, and for me, that's true most of the time, but sometimes it's not true. And that's where having that conscious awareness of the stories I'm telling myself and then the discipline around interrogating them helps me to know, okay, is this really intuition or is this kind of a fear-based or bias-based approach that feels true, but it's not true? Because sometimes our feelings aren't true, you know, or our feelings are misguided in some way, which is not to say we should totally discount them. We shouldn't. I mean, they're, they're really valuable information, but we just kind of need a check and balance there, I think, to make sure we don't get ourselves in trouble. One of the things that I feel highly intuitive about because of my past experience, so it's kind of a combo, is yeah. I was in a really horrible relationship with somebody who mm. manipulated and gaslit me. And so now there's been a, a lot of situations in my adulthood wow. where I am on that immediately, whereas everyone else is still like revering this person. And I'm like, nope, something sketch. And people are like, why are you second guessing this guy, blah, blah, blah. And, turns out every single time so far, <laughs> it's turned out that has been the correct case. But now I'm in this position where I'm so rarely in, in a situation like that. And I've found myself that the multiple people that I've been in this position with have very similar personality types. And it yeah. also tends to be the personality type of highly successful people. And so I've found now I'm a, I'm still around people like that. And my senses, my spidey senses will be going off. But I'm like, mm. okay, no, I'm connecting the wrong things. I'm not connecting their actions. They're, I'm now also linking this personality trait. Right. Right. And so that's the thing I have to challenge. And I'm yep. grateful that I've done enough work to at yes. least bring that amount of awareness because it's so easy to make these connections where I'm like, well, now I'm good at this. You know, I'm never wrong about this one. Right. <laughs> and, then, and your but, brain just loves repeating a pattern. I mean, it, you know, it's like, yeah, we got this. We got that neural pathway down and we're good at it. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I actually journaled one day. I'm like, no, what are the things that really spike my senses about this? Mm. And it, it's about certain way. It's yes, they have that similar personality type, but that's not the thing. It's when they approach me with this, or they cut me off with this, or they are mm -hmm. rejecting my reality with it. Those are the things. And just because so far I've only encountered it in this personality type, or maybe it's even more common in that personality type, doesn't mean that mm -hmm. every single person who has that personality type is going to do the same thing to me. Right. Well, it's the difference between correlation and causation, right? Yeah. You know, just because someone is successful doesn't mean that they're also going to be manipulative and gaslight you. And part of that interrogation process, you know, you could ask yourself, you know, are three people really a big enough sample size to draw a conclusion about everybody who shares these personality traits? And I mean, I think the obvious answer would be probably not. But that's why if you don't go through the process of being clearer that that's a story you're telling yourself and that it has helpful parts and maybe unhelpful parts, that you never get to the interrogation part and you never get to maybe a more nuanced version of that story that helps you take advantage of the wisdom of your intuition, which clearly is present in this situation, but avoid some of those kind of overgeneralizations and pitfalls that could really get in the way of maybe you finding someone fantastic. <laughs> and isn't it ironic that if somebody was telling me something that I had not experienced and they're like, it's based on the study, 
I am the kind of person, especially after the last couple of years where I'm like, let me see the original study. I want to see what right. data you're drawing from. <laughs> and so I'll go and I'm like, this sample size was only 300 people. Ridiculous. Right. Meanwhile, yeah. my sample size for my own studies is two. Right. <laughs> maybe three and i'm like nope what what are the chances that the only two people like this would be this that's that means it's a hundred percent and so right. i just jumped to this conclusion yes. but but you're right it feels good to be right and it feels good to have some sort of certainty like i have some rule for this so i feel safe going into it right but one of the things that you teach is about trading certainty for results mm -hmm. how can that benefit us And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. One of the things that you teach is about trading certainty for results. Mm -hmm. How can that benefit us? Yeah, this is, it's kind of a hard thing in a way, because, you know, we've all heard that saying, like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? <laughs> and it's a little bit like that with our thinking, you know, do you want to be certain? Or do you want to get what you want, ultimately, because I have experienced many things where I thought, gosh, I have tried everything possible to get a breakthrough here. And no matter what I do, it's just not possible for me in my speaking example, I guess I must just not be a speaker. You know, I'm just one of those people that's just super anxious about speaking and it's just not in the cards for me. You know, that'd be another great story. It's not in the cards for me, you know? And in reality, I just hadn't tried some of the things that I learned how to do with the coaches that I worked with. And I just, I didn't have the tools that I needed. And I had this really disempowering story. And so I think that is, is what you, you have to just think through, you know, are you willing to let go of some certainty and try some different things so that you can really get what you want. You know, do you, are you really willing to write that check for certainty and safety over the life that you want? Because for most of us, the answer, if we're really thinking about it is no, no, I'm not, you know, I, I really want 
this kind of relationship or this in my career or, you know, this spiritually or whatever, but that's going to mean some risk-taking and being willing to step out of our comfort zones and our kind of zone of, of certainty into a place of uncertainty so that ultimately we can have what we really, really want, which is more like fulfillment than certainty. A quote that really got me from your book was, the greater our capacity for uncertainty, the more creative we can be about the challenges we face. And so when you really think about that, it's like, yeah, creativity isn't really certainty whatsoever. The most creative people are thinking innovatively. They're thinking about something completely different, something that's never been done before. And so to get into that mindset can be really helpful. But I know that you have three steps for embracing uncertainty. What are some of those steps? Because I know (laughs) uncertainty is just hard. Like the amount of times people I've heard people say, I don't like change or I don't like the unfamiliar. And it's almost like they embrace that more. And so I can see there's so many benefits to figuring out how to open our arms to the other side of that. What are some of those steps for um, uh, helping ourselves embrace uncertainty? Yeah. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is to realize that we're safe. I think, gosh, I have a toddler. So I have five kids. My youngest is three. My oldest is 21. And a lot of times with my three-year-old, she has gone through so many irrational fears. And this is so easy to see in little kids, you know, like she's right currently, she's afraid of mushrooms. I don't know. She like saw it in a show or something. (laughs) She thinks these mushrooms are going to attack her. You know, I don't even know if she's ever seen a mushroom in real life. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I have to talk to her and calm her brain down, that limbic part of her brain and just say, you know what, Naomi? you're safe. Mushrooms aren't real. (laughs) You're really safe. And so I think that is a big part of it is just kind of talking to ourselves lovingly and kindly about the fears that we have around uncertainty. And then even just calling it what it is, you know what, this is just uncertainty. It's okay. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Of course, my brain doesn't like it. There's nothing wrong with me. This is just normal. You know, this is what everybody experiences. And then a big part of my own story, my own success, and this has been true in so many situations and, you know, maybe none more dramatically than this experience of overcoming the fear of speaking was to get really connected to why you're willing to be uncomfortable. You know, like if you don't have anything at stake, if it doesn't mean a lot to you, then, I mean, none of us want to be uncomfortable just for its own sake. It's it's not fun. But when there's something at stake, you know, for me, it was, I don't want to live a small life anymore. I want to be seen. Uh, I want to feel worthy of being seen. I want to feel like I can trust myself and my own body. Um, and I have something that's worth sharing that I don't want to keep inside anymore. And that gave me the courage to stay in that place of uncertainty And it was, it was really uncomfortable, you know, but because I was connected to a bigger why, and you know, this from our, our goal achievement work, that's so important with motivation. We have to have an intrinsic reason why it's worth it to be uncomfortable. My reason is my toddler, because I know that just as I mentioned earlier, the very first question I asked you, what was it like to grow up with a dad like that? I want to be the mom like that. You know, I want to be the one that shows him, like, I want his first basis of understanding his first experiences to be a jumping off point. So that then when he's creating Mm -hmm. his goals, he knows what's possible. And so that's a huge part of my why. And I'll be honest, I'm in this like, weird period where when I, I have a toddler, and I'm also Um, like a month away from giving birth to my second. And so I went through this limbo period right after I had my first where 
it was really hard to set goals for after pregnancy sure. because what's it going to be like being a mom? And I was, I didn't even know if like all of my priorities would change so that mm-hmm. like, am I still going to want this or am I going to be like, no, I need a hundred percent time with my toddler. I've learned about myself. I'm much better <laughs> if I also have my side thing or my full-time thing, whatever it is, I need both <laughs> sides. I totally agree. And then it's a lot easier to be present with my toddler. Yes. But And so now I know that about myself. And so it's a little bit different going into the second baby. Yeah, there's still a lot of unknowns. I have no Mm -hmm. idea what it's going to be like to have two, how I'm going to manage my time. But I trust more that I'm going to want the same things. And so Mm -hmm. having that, though, I am such a different person right now in how I'm setting my goals and and approaching my business than I was two years ago when I was having my last baby. And so that in itself is a kind of certainty that I'm able to cling to that yes. helps the all of the uncertainty a little bit more. It's yep. like, no, you know what? You still have this. And so what I've been practicing doing is when I get caught up in the unknowns, which happens a couple times a day, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stop and I'm like, but what do I know? And it's yes. kind of like the same thing of, of, yeah. oh God, there's all this that's out of my control, but what is in my control? And, yes. and so it's, it's a slightly different variation of that question, yep. but I found it to be really healing. And Mm -hmm. I'm also very thankful for the work that I've done earlier on in life of, I mean, I, I learned how to talk to my inner child before I learned how to talk to a child, you know? And so even like having my toddler there, I find myself approaching challenges with him or his fits or whatever in a completely different way because, Mm -hmm. and normally it's the opposite for people. It's like, how would I talk to my kid? I'm like, how have I learned to talk to my inner child? Yes. Now let me talk to him. And I love that. One of the big things for both of us, <laughs> my little me and his little me, <laughs> is it, you framed it perfectly when you said you are safe. It's framing things in the positive perspective rather than tackling the negative. So instead of saying like, yeah. there's no reason to be afraid, there's no reason for this. Cause then they're just like, well, well then why do I feel this? You know, it's like, right. Or let me safe. tell you all the reasons. Yeah. It's like your feelings are valid and you're safe, like feel into that word. And so even just that's been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So how can we train our narrator to help us achieve our goals rather than hinder yeah. them? Well, I think part of it is realizing that there's the default narrator and, and it's stories in your head and there's nothing you can do about the the fact that your brain just offers up these stories kind of, you know, automatically. So I think that helps all by itself to just say, oh, the pressure's off. You know, if you've ever done any mindfulness work and I know you have and your listeners have, the goal is not to not have thoughts in your head. I mean, if you try to make yourself not think something, the surest way to be really unsettled in, in any kind of mindfulness work is to try to like take control of your thoughts, you know, like like not have the negative thoughts. And I learned this when I was uh, first introduced to mindfulness, you know, you just kind of like watch them and you don't get attached to them and you just sort of let them go like a ticker tape across um, your consciousness. And I think that's what we learn to do with our narrator. We don't get all excited about it. We just sort of say, oh yeah, that's, that's that thing it does. You know, oh, look at that. There's a thought coming up. And then we start to go go through that process of interrogating and imagining. And I think what happens over time when anything that we repeat like this becomes habitual, we recognize the story that pops up, you know, that identify step, and then we just start interrogating it. And what I have found over the years and I found with my clients is that over time, 
you get really good at interrogating. You you stop believing the first thing you think as a default because you know that that's probably not true or not helpful. And you just go through this automatic, you know, interrogation process. And then you begin to think, okay, what could I think that would actually serve me here? And I think the more you do that, then your narrator really becomes your ally. And that's when it's awesome. Because first of all, sometimes it really is trying to keep you safe. And that is what you need in the way that it presents itself to you, like we were talking about with intuition earlier. And that's a great thing, you know, but also it can be trained like a puppy with repetition to start going through these other steps as well, in addition to its kind of automatic response. And that's when you start to see the new neural pathways cut. And this just gets easier and easier and easier. And those first thoughts that come up become less and less powerful over time. Yeah, I have found that that acceptance that it's already it's supposed yeah. to be doing that. Like, that's yeah. one of my mantras. Like, yeah, thank you, brain for trying to keep me safe. But yep. I don't need you right now. Yeah, <laughs> It's exactly how I talk to my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I know you're trying to keep me safe. But you know, let go of the leash. I'm 37. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminds me too of of something my husband and I were just talking about the other day is having a toddler. Gosh, so many learning experiences. So and I'm only many. two years into this. So yep. <laughs> it's still it still feels new. Every stage is such a new thing. Yes. That I don't know. I think you have to get out of parenthood before you're like, okay, now I know all the stages. But totally. we were just recently talking about how like he's just about two right now and he's having more fits about things when he doesn't mm -hmm. get his way. And if I'm not trying to do something else, it doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. Like if I don't have this other idea in mind, yep. if I do like one example, it seems like whenever my husband and I are having a conversation, we're both really passionate about and we want to share this information so bad for some reason, he decides he wants to throw a fit about absolutely nothing. Uh -huh. And so then all of a sudden he's <laughs> screaming and we're like, okay, what do you need bravery? Like stop. Yes. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, but if we're just hanging out and it's like, well, this is just my time with them. It's like, oh, yeah. poor baby, what's wrong? You know, yeah. <laughs> like how yes, can I help so you true. through this? Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing happens with my mind where I have an ex expectation that I'm just going to get through this rather than holding yeah. myself back. Then I'm like, God, like, what is this? Like, I just feel like horrible. Nothing's mm -hmm. going to go right. Versus like just accepting this is what you do. You're yep. my toddler brain <laughs> or whatever it is. Yep. You're trying to keep me safe. You need attention, whatever it is. And and just like kind of easing into acceptance and then saying, mm -hmm. okay, now what was I doing? It doesn't yeah. even really need to do anything different. It's just my approach to it is a little right. bit different. It makes it easier to deal with. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think when we fight it, it just gets bigger. And it, it, it's kind of like our narrator starts to argue with us, you know, like, let me tell you why I'm right, you know, <laughs> and, and if you can just accept it at the beginning with kind of love, really, and gratitude, like you were saying, thank you. I know you're trying to keep me safe. And then you can move on from there. That sets the stage for a really productive conversation with yourself. But if you feel like I'm not supposed to, this is not supposed to be happening. I'm resisting this. I'm not supposed to be, frankly, human. You know, I'm just supposed to be always at my peak, always at my best. Nothing should be this hard. Then that's where we really get ourselves into trouble. So like so many things in life, I think this starts with kindness and self-compassion. And that's really the jumping off point for ultimately uh, writing better stories that get us where we want to go. The one of the other keys to this whole conversation that I think is so important to understand about how our brains work is that 
a lot of this is we're like talking about how we can consciously redirect, yeah. open our mindsets, but there's so much that's going on subconsciously in our minds mm -hmm. as well. And we like to have that control. We like to be like, well, mm -hmm. I can just do this thing and think this way or challenge myself in this way and it'll start to rewire this. But there's also a really big benefit to not doing anything. <laughs> One mm -hmm. of the, the quotes in your book was, not working is still working. Because our subconscious minds are able to reorganize those thoughts if we give them space. Can you talk mm -hmm. more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it just kind of goes to that action bias all over again. I mean, our at least in the Western world, our default is action, fix it, you know? And sometimes that's not necessary. You know, like I, I think about, I tell a story in the book about my own kids. Um, like I said, I have five kids. My younger three children are adopted. The middle two are uh, from Uganda and they were adopted uh, at ages three and 14 months. And no children who are adopted have escaped massive trauma. I mean, it's not a normal thing that you're not able to stay with your biological parents. Something catastrophic has had to happen for that to be necessary. Um, I always like to say adoption is like plan Z, you know, it's the last kind of the last resort. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned about trauma is that you have to integrate traumatic experiences. And that doesn't necessarily happen at a conscious level. You know, it takes time. It takes getting into the body. Um, a lot of those traumatic experiences are held in the body. And there are so many um, beautiful modalities that can help to, to process trauma through the body and to really bring the body back together with the mind. And, and I think that's a good example of not doing, you know, that there, there are things, if we try to sum Sometimes, and, and this is maybe just particular to trauma work, and I'm not a therapist, so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not standing in that professional space. But just as someone who has walked with my children through this, a lot of times the the path of brute force is the worst possible way because the body and the mind heal kind of at their own speed. It's and it's not the speed that our conscious mind works at, you know, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of patience that need is needed for that. And a lot of kindness and space, and that can be really beneficial. Yeah. You told a really intriguing story in the very beginning of your book about dealing with, with mm -hmm. this stuff and, and going to a, a workshop or a convention where mm -hmm. you ended up learning everything that you mm -hmm. wanted to do ended up being wrong and and you were kind yeah. of open opened your mind to all of these other ways yeah. what are some examples of of because i know a lot of my audience has gone through their own trauma and they have mm -hmm. that work to do what are some of the examples that don't work you said brute force but how so versus what does yeah. well um you know one of the things that i've learned with my kids in their journey is that safety is is the core question for people who've experienced trauma, but I actually think it's the core question for all of us. It's just our primitive brain. You know, are we safe? Am I safe with this person? Am I safe in this space? Am I going to be safe if that thing happens? You know, I wasn't safe back then. What do I do with that? I mean, it's just, it's a lot to process through. And um, so I think setting up experiences that feel safe versus threatening is so important. I know for uh, my own kids, part of what 
has been discovered in the work around attachment, which is what, you know, all the the work around early development is called attaching to your caregiver, um, your primary caregiver, when that has been severed unnaturally, uh, as it has in adoption, usually there's all kinds of other stuff that goes along with that. The, The work of the new parent, the adoptive parent is to create felt safety. And, and that looks like coming alongside of the child and helping the child do things that maybe seems like not quite age appropriate, you know? And if you think about that as an adult, um, that would look like things like, okay, well, I probably could do that myself or I could muscle through this, but I'm going to choose to slow down here. I'm going to choose to take a nap. I'm going to choose to go on a walk. I'm going to choose to take a bath and be kind to myself instead of pushing through and always doing the hardest thing. You know, like I'm one of those people that I have a lot of capacity for doing hard things. I've been through a lot of hard stuff and I I just kind of default to, yeah, I can do that. It's hard. Sure. I'll just double down, you know, and sometimes I need to back up and rest instead of doing the hard thing. And I also need to ask for, for help and support. You know, we've had lots of support for our kids, which has been helpful, but I think this is where outside resources can be so helpful, whether that's a therapist or a coach of some kind, or uh, maybe just a mentor or uh, family or friends, if that's relevant for you. But sometimes we think um, about brute force and we think about doing things, you know, on our own when we really don't have to. And we talked earlier about how beneficial that can be in our stories, you know, to have a other people's perspectives. And that can be true in all kinds of areas. When I got with my husband, I had never felt safe, I think, with a partner, mm. on, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there, I had, I didn't have all terrible partners, but, and so there's different variations of the word safe. Sure. It's not like I felt unsafe with some, but I didn't necessarily feel like I could completely be myself, for example, mm-hmm. and some of the less extreme ways of feeling unsafe. And then I had relationships where I actually felt unsafe. But right, right. one of the things that I learned about myself is because I didn't, I kind of grew up with two dads, but also kind of none. Like my parents were separated mm-hmm. very young. I recently mm-hmm. posted about this on Instagram where I, I was blessed to have two loving father figures, but my dad... I'd see him for trips, basically. It wasn't even really every other weekend. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't enough to cultivate that closeness. And then my stepdad, probably for the best, would kind of pass off big decisions to my mom. Like, you know, mm-hmm. have your mom do this, which I probably would have rebelled against him if he didn't do that. But yeah. I remember feeling envy with my friends mm-hmm. that had dads that they, one friend called herself a daddy's girl. And I remember like my heart mm-hmm. hurting when she said that. Wow. And I remember being even younger and uh, my neighbor climbing under a dad's lap and actually sitting there thinking, I wonder what it would feel like to feel so close to a man that I felt compelled to climb onto his lap because mm. I just never had that. Mm. And wow. and so mm-hmm. <laughs> this is almost ridiculous. And But when I, when I ended up with my husband, there were a lot of parts of my inner child. Like I've never acted that much, (laughs) that childlike with somebody. And I just get these moods where it was almost like role-playing, I guess, where I just like be this like cuddly little thing and, and just go into this small child's like persona and he sort of embraced it. And Wow. I don't, it hasn't really happened since we've had kids. And so it's funny sharing something like that because I don't know, maybe it embarrasses some people. But for me, I found being able to be that, that small version of me really healing. Like it was like mm-hmm. this, this, and I could tell I'm also very pregnant right now, but I'm like tearing up thinking about it. <laughs> like Aww. some of these early things of just like nuzzling yeah. in and just being like, 
I, I had this thing where I'd be like, I yeah. feel tiny today, you know? And so he'd just know to like oh. nurture me a little bit more. And yeah. And so yeah. it's interesting. I It took a lot of self-awareness to even realize that about myself. Mm-hmm. And so we all have all of these layers. It doesn't necessarily need to be a trauma. Like I yeah. didn't consider my parents divorce a trauma. It's all I ever knew they were divorced yeah. so young, you know? Right. But you develop these mindsets about things because of what you witness and because of mm-hmm. what you wish you had and b- the things mm-hmm. that kind of affect you. And so it does take a lot of self-awareness to even identify those stories like we talked yes. about and then start to challenge them and then start to figure out our own little paths that might mm-hmm. heal that, you know, and yeah. and to be able to feel comfortable enough to play, whether mm-hmm. it's with our new ideas and new type of mindset yeah. or a new way of being just to sort of feel differently and see what that feels like. And, yeah. and so what I kind of want to leave people with, because I, I found this exercise really helpful, you have two, and the, but they're very similar. One's around questions to ask yourself to help yourself kind of get out of your strict thinking and identify novel ideas. And the other one is about moving from a limited mindset to a possibility mindset. And so I love leaving people with things that they can actually work on or journal. What are some questions that you have found really helpful to get you out of your stricter ways of thinking and open yourself up to new ways? Mm, That's a great question. You know, part of what um, I have always done is ask myself, the question, what would I do or what would I think if I knew that I couldn't fail? And then what would I do or think if I had unlimited resources? Because part of what happens with these stories and our brain's desire to keep us safe is we really end up in a place of scarcity and we don't even know it necessarily, you know, but we, we end up in this place of scarcity. And so part of what we're trying to do in this interrogation step is to open our minds to the abundance that really is all around us, but that we've kind of been conditioned to not see as a way to protect ourselves. And so asking these questions of what would I do or what would I think if I knew I couldn't fail and what would I do or what would I think if I had unlimited resources can tend to open us up to some possibilities that we may have never considered before. And you know, you'll have to, as you're considering these questions, you'll have to be conscious of saying when the thought comes up, yeah, but that's not really possible or yeah, but we know that's not really true. You know, we don't have unlimited resources or whatever to just say, yeah, but just for a moment, we're going to suspend disbelief. We can come back to that in a second. That's always a great way to kind of calm your brain down. You know, yeah, we can come back to that concern in a second, but for now, let's just suspend disbelief and just imagine what would it be like? What would, what would we think about what would we do if we knew we couldn't fail, if we knew we had unlimited resources? And I think that would be a great prompt to to sit with your journal and a nice cup of tea or coffee and think through. I like to do that even on walks. I go through yes. phases of like being in major information consumption mode. Yep. And then I can't listen to anything or read yep. anything. Yep. Now I'm kind of trying to balance those. I'm actually anything I listen to, I've been I won't listen to more than I can what I'm calling distilling. I've been reading a Uh lot of books about note taking. So I have to look back at whatever notes that I take and then distill them and write certain things in my own words and take different amounts Mm -hmm. of notes. And I'm just seeing what that opens up. But part of that for me is doing it with my own thoughts. And so I like to go on walks and use like a transcriber, like Otter or something like that and just sort of talk. And 
I've been trying to play around more with creativity and just get myself out of those thinking ideas and just mm -hmm. think like, what if I was going to invent something? Like, what do people need? What if I was going to yeah. invent something that everyone else thinks is impossible? What's that? Or like ask yes. myself some weird prompt and then just talk yes. about it, have it transcribed that. and then yep. like go back and look. So I found this so helpful. Again, the book was incredible. It had so much new information and just different ways of looking things that looking at things that instilled the information in a different mm. way. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, your company, your work yeah. and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Yeah. Thanks so much for asking. So the best place is at mindyourmindsetbook.com slash love, mindyourmindsetbook.com slash love. And this is going to tell you all about me, about my dad, who's my co-author on this book um, and about the book itself. But also um, one of the reasons you want to use that specific link that I gave is that we have some special bonuses when you buy the book. You can buy it anywhere. You can buy it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Target or whatever. Um, but then take your receipt and you can come to this website and get bonuses, including a course that we're just recording this week that's going to walk you through the book, that's going to take you through exercises and give you prompts, um, a self-coacher desk tool that you can print out and kind of walk yourself through this framework that we've introduced today, um, and then also the audiobook. So don't buy the audiobook because you're going to get that for free by the Kindle or the paper edition of the book, and then make sure to take your receipt to mindyourmindsetbook.com slash love and get all that great stuff for free. All the links for this episode are at mindlove.com slash 294. Your challenge for this week is to get clear on your goals and start to break through those limiting beliefs and actually create a plan for accomplishing something. I don't care what it is, figure out one of your goals and make it a reality. And I have something awesome to share with you this week. This month's masterclass in the Mind Love membership is directly aligned with this episode. It's all about spiritual goal setting, uniting the cosmos with the concrete. So it's your guide to harmonizing all of the mystical aspects of the universe with practical actions and enabling you to manifest your goals effortlessly and joyfully, which is really the most important part. So it will help you connect with your higher purpose and align your goals with life's natural flow. So if you've had a hard time accomplishing goals, especially maybe since high school or college when you had a structure, this course is for you. It'll guide you through intention setting, transforming your plans into achievable tasks, and then sustaining your motivation through spiritual alignment. You will also learn how to stay open to divine guidance while taking these inspired actions, which will make sure that all of your progress is fueled by love, creation, and abundance. I'm really excited about this masterclass. It's something that I've had in my brain for years, and it's the direct steps that I follow when I'm accomplishing anything. So I'm excited to finally birth this into the world and share it with you. And the best part is when you sign up, you get access to all of the other masterclasses that we've released this year. You can sign up at mindlove.com membership. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.